Welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, episode number 484. And welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. I am your host, Riley Bowman, and I'm joined this evening with a special guest, Mr. Chuck Haggard of Agile uh, Training Consulting. Uh, We'll do a little more formal introduction of Chuck here momentarily, but before we do that, I want to give a quick throw out to him and his business, AgileTactical.com is where you can find him. And then we're going to be talking about some more throughout this episode, but this episode sponsor is the 2021 Guardian Conference, uh, which is an event being held in September later this year near Oklahoma City. And we got a bunch of people already signing up and there's still spots. So we, we are hoping that you're, you'll hear the sound of my voice and you'll go, yep, that's, that's a place I got to be. So guys, check it out. Learn more at guardianconference.com. Chuck will be one of our featured instructors there. And I know you're going to want to take his classes, especially after you hear what we talk about here tonight. Uh, I should also mention that the uh, event is sponsored or presented by CCW Safe, but also sponsored by a number of other sponsors. And I want to highlight one of those right now, and that is Throom, formerly known as Newbold Targets. Uh, Throom is sponsoring the event. There'll be some great uh, prizes that'll be part of the event. Most likely some will be there from Throom as well. Uh, they're, they're, they're targets that I'm familiar with and I've used in some of my training, especially when we want to shoot targets that normally we would do on steel, but we want to do it a little bit closer than steel. So guys, appreciate uh, Throom's support for the Guardian Conference and for this podcast. So let's get into it here with Mr. Haggard. Chuck, appreciate you being on the show with me this evening. My pleasure. Uh, it's taken a couple attempts to to make your schedule and my schedule align, so I appreciate that. But uh, you're, this, you're, this is the first time we've had you on our podcast, and so chances are there are some that aren't familiar with you or as familiar as they are going to be by the end of this episode. So I was hoping you'd uh, give us a quick summary, if you will, of your expertise and, and your level of experience, kind of how you've gotten to where you are at this time. So um, I'm currently in my 34th year of law enforcement, uh, retired out of one career after 28 years with a very busy police department, had a number of roles there, including uh, being the range master, firearms instructor, worked my way up the ranks, uh, officer, field training officer, sergeant, lieutenant, um, was on our SWAT team for 17 years, very busy operational tempo on that team. Uh Use of force trainer. I'm a national trainer with the National Law Enforcement Training Center out of Kansas City. It's teamed up with Kansas City, Missouri Police Department, specializes specifically in reasonable use of force training. Uh, I have uh, been involved in a number of other defensive tactics systems that, that are police centric. Uh, dabble in jujitsu, uh, not as much as I'd like to. Uh, uh, the COVID has been a problem with that. You know, hard to social distance when you're like giving somebody an angry hug, you know? <laughs> right. Um, uh, so I, I've been involved in, in things like uh, taser training, baton training, pepper spray training, uh, firearms training, uh, empty hand tactics, things like that since uh, 1987. Uh, and, and have can, you know, just basically it's been a journey as far as my education and then becoming a, becoming a trainer at some point and then continuing to try to improve my skills and, uh, you know, the quality of product I can put out in classes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a, that's quite a career. I mean, as you've mentioned, you've, you've done it a long time and, mm-hmm. uh, you're still, still working at it. Uh, have a hard time retiring as you mentioned a moment ago. So yeah, I'm bad at it. <laughs> good, good for you. Good for you. Uh, your name has come up in numerous circles over the years. Uh, you've been associated with a lot of other respected instructors in the industry. You've taught a lot at a lot of other events, both law enforcement focused, but also civilian on the civilian side of things as well. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that you're particularly known for is uh, less lethal options. Um, how did you, how did you get into that? 
I mean, obviously law enforcement, but you, you've been instructing in that for some time. So where did that fall into play? So because of the nature of the job, I got involved in that as a cop and was was uh, as a user level, you know, street level guy. Uh, we had a very busy department and I spent my entire time on the street except for a three year stint as a range master. Um, never did like the detective thing or anything like that. Stayed on the street the whole time uh, and became a trainer uh, eventually. Um I was dissatisfied with the quality of training that I got when I hired on. Uh, we we had like really lackluster, uh, lowest common denominator training that that just wasn't what we really needed. So what I tried to do is uh, what I started doing is going out and getting my own training on the side on my on my own time, and then uh, some of my friends wanted to you know. Hey, would you, you know, learn at that class, that, that sort of thing. And that's how I kind of got into helping other people out and then started training for the department in a formal capacity when we started to professionalize our program. Um, one of my maxims of life that I have, uh, you know, observed or learned over the years is in, uh, a situation where some amount of force is going to be used. You can't talk your way out of it. Or as a cop, like, you know, if you need to make an arrest and you can't jet out mind trick somebody into cuffs, there's, there is eventually at some point, if somebody doesn't want to cooperate with the program, uh, it, there, there's, there's a certain amount of force that's going to have to be used. That's all there is to it. And then sometimes you don't have uh, any choice in the matter. One of my mentors was Pat Rogers. He was very famous for telling people, the other guy gets to vote on your plan. Right. Uh, so uh, one of my maxims is if you use enough force at a low level early enough, that often means you don't have to use more force later to dig your way out of a hole. Mm. So uh, one of the most glaring examples people can look up if they're not familiar with it in a police context is uh, the Kyle Denkeller video where Deputy mm. Denkeller pulls a guy over, guys got the pickup truck. They have a verbal confrontation. The guy goes back to the truck, digs the M1 carbine out from behind the seat, loads it up and it degenerates into a gunfight. So, in that incident, uh, unfortunately, Deputy Dan Keller had a number of opportunities to use a low level of force. If he had used pepper spray, if he had effectively utilized his baton, uh, he didn't have a taser, but if he had effectively utilized that, heck, he was just, he was a really big guy, even with no real training, if he had mindset, if he had just grabbed that guy in a big bear hug and ran over and dropped him on his head in the ditch, it would not have turned into the gunfight it turned into. Um, <clears throat> in uh, the non-cop role, one of the examples I use is the George Zimmerman case, which many people are fairly familiar with because of the, the media coverage of it. And uh, taking the confrontation in a vacuum, you know, because there's, there's allegations of things – George did, and maybe he was following Trayvon Martin and things like that. But just taking in a vacuum, um, uh, let's say, let's say for the sake of argument, devil's advocate here, George was doing uh, neighborhood watch. He was supposed to be doing that, so he was he was doing what he was supposed to be doing in his neighborhood. And let's say Trayvon uh, had confronted him about that. If uh, George Zimmerman had pulled out pepper spray and sprayed Trayvon, disabling his vision, making him gag and cough, backed off, called 911, what are the odds that you and I would have ever heard of George Zimmerman? Yeah. Probably almost zero because it wouldn't have turned into a deadly force event. So um, the first time I taught a less lethal class in a civilian conference uh, context was at a uh, range master tactical conference, uh, by, uh, Tom Gibbons had asked me to, to cover some of that. And I've been noting more and more interest in the non-police field for things like pepper spray, uh, impact weapons, things like that. So taught the class and I build it because at a big conference, you know, you have to have a hook to get, you know, you want people to come to your class. So I called it something between a harsh word and a gun. 
And that's basically what it is, is giving you options, some something between a harsh word and a gun. Um, so I'm a big believer in having those, those lower force options because they are very often sufficient to get the job done without having to end up in a deadly force scenario. Hmm. Right. Yeah. I like that too. And I, I, I seem to remember seeing uh, that, uh, <clears throat> That block of instruction advertised. I, I haven't attended TACCON uh, yet. It's been on my radar for, for a couple of years. It just seems to always land on a bad weekend for me. But I uh, follow along and, and see the the schedule of instructors and, and what's being taught. Um, that, that's a good one. It seems to me that I don't, I don't see or hear of a lot of <clears throat> regular Joes and Janes, you know, out there carrying batons around with them. Do you think there's a place for civilians on use? Um, somewhat limited. I'll tell you what I'm more, much more of a fan of. Uh, and I've seen it's uh, um, been kind of problematic because of local laws or state laws is I'm a big fan of blackjacks and saps right. uh, because they're very short. They're much more uh, easy to carry. And with proper training, um, if you're not doing the Mongo crack people in the head thing, mm-hmm. uh, with the proper training, they can be used uh, very reasonably at a lower level of force than, than or a lower level of confrontation than you would expect. Uh, and they're very, very effective. Mm-hmm. Um, when I go down my list of uh, what's effective, what's wor- what works, what is practical, what are the the kind of things that that you can keep with you? Because you and I know things like carrying a gun. Carrying a gun is a pain in the butt. You know, you right. want it, it, it. You have the gear. You have the weight. Uh, how are you going to conceal it? Things like that. Um, so carrying like an expandable baton or something like that is a real is a real pain in the butt. It's actually worse than carrying a pistol. Um, but uh, pepper spray is easy to incorporate into a defensive uh, concealed carrier carry paradigm. And then, uh, saps and blackjacks are as well because they're so compact. And then if you know how to use them, they work really well. Uh, so those are the realistic two force options that, uh, that I really suggest to people. Um, the only other one that is really effective in any way, shape or form is the actual taser product. But, um, what we've seen, what we can learn a lot of from the police world is the magic electric pistol doesn't really work as well as people think it were. It doesn't work like it does on TV. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And there's obviously the civilian models of uh, tasers. Uh, what is it like the C2? Is that? Is that um, one? I think the newest one is the Bolt. I believe that's the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, I think of the older one. They got away from the one that looked like a cross between a banana and a, a flashlight. It was kind of kind of banana shaped flashlight, and uh, now the one they have now uh, looks like an actual pistol, as the Beretta style, ah, the like the, the uh, enforcement taser model. pulse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. I remember seeing this one now. Yeah, I mean, we certainly see plenty of examples of tasers not being effective in situations. Why, why do you think that is? Uh, part of it is, is because uh, one, it's a single shot. Uh, they have multi-shot models now, but primarily they've been single shots. Two, uh, unlike with uh, other projectile firearms, you're firing two projectiles with those darts. And then it, there's a lot of ifs. Uh, they work very, very effectively if. Mm-hmm. if both of uh, your projectiles, if both the darts hit the target, if they make good connection, if they're not defeated by very thick, heavy clothing that keeps the, the electricity from, from jumping from the probe into uh, the person's body. If you have enough dart spread, if you don't have a, a dart wire separation, and then uh, if uh, the spread is sufficient over motor muscle areas where you're going to get good lockup on the person, so the first time I got darted, uh, they do in, in the instructor course. They do it from behind the the top dart because that they the the top dart goes straight where you're aiming, and the other dart goes out at an angle. So the farther out you go, the more angular spread between the darts. 
the, the first time I got darted, the top dart hit in the top of my lat muscle on the right side and the bottom dart hit at the bottom of my butt cheek on the right side. Hmm. And so that was uh, a spread that crossed the belt line and it had two major muscle groups. You know, you got, you got your glutes, that's a big motor muscle and you got your lats. Well, when both of those locked up because the, the, the pulse of the taser is electrical energy and it's kind of like jamming radar, if you will, but it basically induces uh, a massive Charlie horse cramp uh, in those muscles and makes them, makes them clench up real hard. So yeah, I was stuck, tried to, I've tried to fight through that. Uh, if, if, he, if you get hit good, it's, it's impossible. You're basically paralyzed, but then it comes down to if, mm-hmm. uh, first field use I had, the guy had a heavy coat with a long coat tail and the bottom dart, uh, had, did not make connection. It's a simple electrical circuit. Um, you know, if I have a battery down here and two wires and they go up to a light bulb, uh, I have a simple electrical circuit and the electricity is going around. Well, if I disconnect the one wire, I don't have half a circuit. It's all or nothing. So uh, that guy I hit, very very first taser use wasn't effective, except um, the one dart was high. He he looked at what ha- he flinched, looked at what happened told me that thing don't work. And then he grabbed the bottom dart, <laughs> which made connection. Um, and then he tipped over and we, we got him under arrest without further incident. Uh, but uh, taser darts can be defeated by clothing rather easily. And I've had weird stuff happen. One of my, one of my officers uh, hit a guy and one of the darts was on the little, you know, the little plastic widget on the end of the drawstring on your hood, hoodie. Mm one of the darts hit the little plastic widget and that was enough to defeat the electrical current, um, from disabling the guy. So, uh, can they be an effective tool? They can be a very effective tool judiciously used. Um, when you see them poorly used, uh, look last year, do you remember the, the incident at the Wendy's in Atlanta that turned into a shooting that caused the Atlanta riots? Yep. That was a taser used very poorly, and it actually made the situation worse, not better. Yeah. Would, would you mind expounding on that some? So um, for the tasers to work effectively, you have to use the darts and have that big spread, like the shot, that, that first shot that I took, that worked very effectively. If the probes are too close together, you don't have a mu- enough muscle mass, or if you don't hit people in an effective area. I can tell you... Uh, um, like uh, we got darted or we did a test dart one time. I took one in, in the bottom dart was in the abs. The top dart was in my pec. That wasn't enough uh, motor muscle. My legs still work. If I have that kind of spread, I can actually walk over and lay hands on you. It hurts bad, but uh, it doesn't disable me. So the drive stun, which works just like a stun gun that is often sold to uh, non-cops, uh, everybody thinks anything electric now is a taser. It's not. Mm-hmm. The stun guns are the little box, you know, like here's my my cell phone. If this was a stun gun, it'd have, it'd have the two little probes. You hit the button, the little lightning bolt jumps back and forth. Uh, those things are worthless. Mm-hmm. Well, taser drive stun is just about as worthless. So during the course of that arrest, the, the guy got combative. The one officer pulled his... Uh, his taser out and we're u- utilizing it in drive stun mode where he's using it like a stun gun and uh, trying to make this guy get on the ground. All that did was induce an adrenaline rush into their suspect, which made him fight harder. Uh, and we know one of the officers got a concussion. The other officer had his taser taken away from him and the whole thing degenerated into a shooting. Um, so drive stun on a taser, it can actually make, it can increase uh, the suspect's resistance in a, in a police scenario. And although I don't know of one in particular, I imagine the exact same thing would happen with a, a stun gun or one of the, the non-police tasers that they sell to the public. Yeah. It's a localized pain compliance type tool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, some people, it may be painful enough depending on their pain threshold, to go, okay, 
that hurts. I don't, I don't like that. And other people are just going to get man- uh, angry. <clears throat> um, almost every time I've seen it used, it's made the situation worse. Almost yeah. 100% of the time. Yeah. Cool. Well, that's a good, uh, good kind of summary, if you will, of tasers. Um, are you aware of any civilian uses that have, you know, like I'm sure they, I'm sure they exist, but I can't actually think of many that have been successfully used. Um, I don't, I don't even particularly know of one and I know of none in our, like my area. Uh, I know of dozens and dozens of like, uh, um, you know, uses of pepper spray, uses of hit somebody with something heavy type of things mm-hmm. or uh, the uh, defensive firearms uses, you know, quite a few of those. But I can't think of in in the areas where I've been a cop uh, ever seen a report or anything in the news or anything like that on one of those. Um, yeah. So uh, I think, you know, one one of the things on those is the uh, the non-police models. They cost more than a pistol. You know, the last I looked, they were like seven, eight hundred dollars, something like that. And um, not everybody can afford to dump that kind of money into yet another piece of gear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I can't, I can't think of any. Uh, so, I mean, it's a, it's a tool that uh, has a, a distance, you know, that's rather specific. Whether where it's going to be most effective. Um, you get too close, not as effective, too far away, not, not effective. Another tool that is, we always, obviously we talked about, uh, blackjack saps, et cetera, which is a very, very close, uh, you know, CQB type mm-hmm. item, if you will. Um, but another tool that gives us some options at distance, which you touched on, but now I'd like to elaborate on is, is OC spray. Mm-hmm. Um, but OC, fortunately, where taser may be less effective at closer distances, OC can be effective at any distance that you can reach the person. Yeah, uh, it it will work at point blank range. Uh, it's probably better not to have somebody you know in a headlock and using it type of thing. Uh, but it, it it is in fact going to spray and and if you hit your target area is going to be effective. Uh, one of the reasons I'm such a fan of it is, is uh, low cost, easy to train well, quick level of proficiency, works a- across the board in my experience with a quality product, um, uh, works across the board really pretty effectively. Uh, I've, I've had, you know, probably a couple hundred or more OC spray uses since we got it in police work at my old job, probably 1988. Uh, it's a little fuzzy. It's been a while, <laughs> but uh, I believe it was 1988. And uh, as a program, it worked very, very effectively. And one of the things that it did was reduce the level of violence. Uh, tends to take the fight out of the fighter. And so if, he, you know, if you're going to go toe-to-toe with somebody and you can stop the fight from turning into a fist fight, that's kind of a win. And that's, that's my experience with it in police work, uh, rather extensively. Uh, my observation of it used in a non-police environment is it tends to be more effective because what cops have to do is lay hands on people and put them into custody. And in a, a non-police scenario, you don't have to walk up and lay hands on a guy. It allows you to have some, some of that reactionary gap, some of that distance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, like you said, it, 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 there's no guarantee, just like, of course, it's, this is true of just about any tool we might employ. There's, there's no tool that's 100% effective 100% of the time, but even with some individuals that may be less affected by OC spray, mm-hmm. it, it usually going to have some effect. Like you, like you said, it, it's going to, it's going to change the fight somewhat. It may take some of the fight out of them because at the very mm-hmm. least, vision is starting starting to get obscured gets a little bit harder to breathe that's going to have an effect on that person's ability to continue to fight even if they are able to fight through it it that's been my observation and you know i have asked people um let's say you were a ufc fighter 
and you they started doing a, a coin toss like they do at the beginning of a football game. So you know you win the coin toss, and that means you get the option one second before the bell rings, you get to do the three stooges in the other guy's eye. Are you going to take that advantage in the fight? Why would you not? Yeah. So even if that's all you get is a big eye blink, if if you're going to have to fight, you have an advantage. Yeah. Uh, in my experience, though, it, it tends to be much, much more effective than that. Uh, I've, I've seen grown men laying on the ground screaming because they were exposed to pepper spray. And I'm talking, I'm talking suspects in the street, uh, laying on the ground in a fetal position, screaming. Um, people say, well, you know, you got to be ready. It doesn't always work. The second police action shooting event that I was a party to, uh, one of our narcotics detectives shot a dude through the aorta with a 45. And the guy didn't flinch or go down. And in fact, he was on his feet and dangerous for probably another couple, three minutes uh, Mm -hmm. running around with a shotgun. So does that mean 45s don't work? Does that mean we abandon pistols? Do do we just write the whole thing off? You know, no, none of of that's the case. Um, Part of the problem with pepper spray usage, both in the police world and non-police world, is there's a lot of bad product out there, particularly back in the olden days where some of this mythology comes from. There was a lot of really, really poor product. Um, uh, no quality control. The actual hotness of the pepper spray was very poor. It was literally weak sauce. Mm. So, you know, some of the arguments I hear are analogous to Let's say, uh, Riley, you were in a shooting. You come to me and you're like, uh, yeah, Chuck, uh, the pistols don't work, man. I shot this guy and it just didn't work. Well, okay, let's examine this. Tell me, you know, what what kind of what kind of gun did you have? Well, I had a Beretta Jetfire 22 short. <clears throat> okay. Yeah, I shot the guy in the pinky toe and it didn't even slow him down. Okay, well, I see some issues here with how the incident developed and then your post-analysis of the incident. You know, the, right. so quantifying pepper spray type, actual uh, major capsinoid content, how effective is the spray, where you hit the guy, you know, the, the conditions under the use, things like that. And even taking that in, into effect uh, or, or into account, um, it still has really good effect in a wide range of uh, circumstances in my not inconsiderable experience. Yeah. So let's break down some of the uh, common offerings in terms of the product and and what sort of factors folks want to consider and and take a look at uh, to uh, make sure they pick pick the stuff that's going to work or give them the best chance of working. Uh, So quality product. One of the first things you want to find out is do they actually test the peppers, the actual peppers um, because it's an all natural product. Right. Uh, and there's in anything in the natural world, there's a variation in the quality of the product. So some years peppers are hotter. Some years peppers are not as hot. Um, uh, you know, my wife had a garden where she had some peppers that off of the same plant uh, during a wet year, the the peppers were not that hot. And then we had a drought year where they didn't get as much water. And man, those peppers were really hot. And they were all off the same bush, you know, mm. so there's, there's a variation. What the manufacturer needs to do is actually do lab testing to prove what the major capsinoid content or the MCC of that product that, that is going into the pepper spray is. Uh, you want to have a good canister that has uh, some sort of uh, safety so that it doesn't go off in your pocket or in your purse or whatever the case may be. Um, quality, quality, uh, canister system, if you will. Uh, one of the things that really uh, torques me in the, in the industry is the things that they market to the ladies. Uh, you can just make it pink and, you know, they they expect that, that women are going to buy it or bling it up or something. And some of the pepper sprays out there that, you know, they're pink or they have rhinestones or whatever. Uh, but then you look at these other factors of effectiveness and, you know, it's just a crap product. Um, <clears throat> so, you want your product to, to, you want to know what's in it, that they can tell you what the major capsinoid content is. Uh, to, to their credit, Sabre 
uh, has been a company that has really driven that trend. Kind of like when Glock came out with striker fired pistols, everybody else in the gun community and the gun manufacturing community had to react to that and, and start to, you know, because there was a paradigm shift in what kind of pistols people were buying. Uh, Sabre started lab testing. Uh, to my knowledge, they were the first company to do that. And they've been kind of driving the fact that to compete, your quality control is going to have to be up to par. So that that was a good thing as far as uh, their their company Um kind of a public service, if you will. Um, quality of the pepper product, quality of the canister. Also, things like uh, expiration date, uh, just like you want to change out your your carry ammunition once a year. Uh, you can't carry your, you, you shouldn't carry your bullets, you know, 10 years in your gun or whatever the case may be. Uh, any aerosol product will go bad on you if you carry it long enough or expose it to enough heat or something like that. So, you want your product to have a expiration date that you know it's time to trade it out and get new stuff. Um, so that's another sign of a quality product. Mm. Uh, the the ones that I specifically recommend right now, uh, the Sabre Red products that are 1.33%, the Sabre Crossfire. I like Cone. I like Stream. Uh, I am not a fan of the gels. I've been sprayed with them a number of times, and I have exposed students to the gels uh, dozens and dozens of times and uh, tends to have a very slow effect in my observation, whereas the cones and the streamers do not. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a big fan lately, new new product line out of Palm, P-O-M. Uh, that's that's a uh, young man that, that runs that company, is a, is a pretty good guy that I, I've personally met um, takes user feedback into account and they've improved their product line quite a bit. Very good form factor. Um, <laughs> I would call Palm basically the Ruger LCP of the uh, pepper spray world. It's effective enough, uh, if you use it correctly. And then it's so small, you can keep it, you know, it's not a whole lot bigger than like a tube, tube of a chapstick. So, you know, you can have it on your keychain. You can have it in your pocket. You can have it in your purse, things like that. It's pretty easy to incorporate that into your lifestyle. Um, uh, there's probably a couple others out there, but those those two are my go-to brands right now. Yeah. No, you're, you're spot on about that pump too. That, that uh, I just returned from Oregon. Um, I don't have concealed carry reciprocity in Oregon, and I don't not cool like some of you retired cops with uh leosa and stuff so uh uh yeah had my my canister of palm and a good knife and hey those are the tools i got and you know had to be had to spend a little bit of time in the portland area you know not not my preference but i got i got what i got and if something goes down i gotta you know i gotta do everything i can (laughs) yeah i've uh you know um uh, one of my friends is greg elifritz and he writes about that uh you know, traveling to different areas and, you know, in the United States, not all of us can carry everywhere we would like to carry. I get that. Uh, I vacation places like I went, I went to Belize, you know, I looked up there, they're, they're a British, former British colony, uh, looked up their laws. You couldn't carry a blade more than four inches, uh, or I'm sorry, more than three inches. So I bought a, a little spider coast salt, uh, dive knife that I kept with me uh, during my time down there. Had a walking stick that I uh, walked around because we were going to do some hiking and things like that. Mm. Um, picked up a local, don't know how effective it would have been, but local uh, off-brand pepper spray product that I got pretty cheap. And then, uh, you know, when I was leaving, I gave that away to uh, one of the ladies at the hotel. But uh, yeah, so can't carry my gun down there. Didn't wasn't going to try. That's that's a good way to end up in a prison in a country that doesn't have the constitution. You know, that's not good for you. But uh, you know, sometimes we. I think if we are educated in our options and we have some proficiency in in multi mode, you know, I just uh, I can't put everything into. I got my magic blaster on my hip and it's going to solve all my problems. We want to be thinking tacticians so that we can do the right thing at the right time for the right reasons and then utilize the right tool for the job. Yep. Yep. That's right. And real quick before we get, uh, you know, any, any further along here, 
what what are some of the numbers folks should be looking for when they're when they're talking about you know major caps caps ah, I can't even talk tonight capsinoid uh, content the MCC number like uh kind of, do you have kind of a range you mentioned you threw out some uh, like I say you read about one point three three. Yeah, like the uh, the this, the really high quality products, saber the saber reds, the crossfire, the palm, they're all in like the one point three to one point four percent. That's a really good stout pepper spray product to give people a one to clear up some misinformation because I just read it again on the internet, and to uh, to give some context, uh, the EPA. Uh, directs that bear spray. So like you're going to go to Alaska and maybe use this against a grizzly bear, which by the way, has also proven historically to actually be very effective. Mm. So bear spray legally tops out at 2% major capsinoid content. So uh, yeah. And the 1.3 to 1.4% range stuff, it that's really hot. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I started my career, we had a, a product called Capstun that uh, Zark International made it. Now I know, and it was actually pretty effective, but now I know that that's a product that was 0. 0.7, 0. 0.8. Mm-hmm. And uh, that could be, that could be fairly effective. Uh, depending on where you live, you may have legal issues in what you have to carry. Like I know there's jurisdictions in the country where you can only buy a can uh, it can't be above a certain size. You know, they give you a size limit. You can only carry like one of the little keychain models, um, things like that. So you have to look up at what's legal in your area. I would still carry, uh, like I know Sabre makes a 0.33 uh, as part of their product line versus the 1.33. So obviously, you know, quite a bit less uh, major capsinoid content. If that's all I could get, I would carry it. I would use it. Um, but knowing that I'm probably going to have it be less effective than it should be or what I would hope it to be. Uh, but something about 0.7.8 up into that 1.3, 1.4% range is, in my experience, is a very quality product. Mm-hmm. Yep. Cool. Cool. That's good clarification for sure. Sometimes you'll also see so- stuff mentioned like 10%. OC concentration and, and people might see that and think, well, 10%, well, that, you know, and, and try to equate that to the MCC number. So can, can you kind of expand yeah, mind on that as well? Completely different. So uh, you got to look at what all is in the product. Uh, let's say I'm making chili at home, right? So I'm cooking the chili. Then my hot sauce is what's going to tune it up as far as like how hot it is to eat. So my analogy would be is the, the major capsinoid content would be like the, the hot sauce you're putting in your chili. You know, the whole pot of chili is not made of hot sauce. Uh, so how much hot sauce goes into it is going to eventually, you know, increase, you know, how it tastes uh, as far as the heat factor. So uh, major capsinoid content is what you want to know. That's, that's a real number that you can quantify kind of like, you know, horsepower in a car or something like that. Uh, in the early years when quality control was poor and people were uh, making snake oil claims, uh, talking about percentage or SHU, Scoville heat units is what people did. Uh, I know one, when we had the caps done, it was billed as a 5.5% solution. Okay, whatever. We didn't know what we didn't know in 1988. So a competitor product was 10%. And then people started buying that because it's the nature of people, especially in America, to have some Tim the Tool Man in them. You know, if Tim the Tool Man could buy a a chainsaw or a chainsaw with a turbocharger, which one's he going to buy? He's going to get the turbocharger, right? So the product that was claiming to be ten percent was actually zero point one eight percent. Wow, major capsinoid content. So uh, I've seen therapeutic rubs, the like the arthritis type rubs that also use capsaicin as the active ingredient that were in the uh, 0.01 range. So what we're talking about is something that's supposed to be a defensive tool that hardly has any more major capsinoid content than a therapeutic arthritis rub, you know, that's medicinal, if you will. Mm. Um, and that's the kind of like shenanigans they were playing 
with false advertising and things like that in the industry for a very long time. And unfortunately, there's still companies doing that, which is why you you want to be an educated consumer. Well, you see some similar things when companies are marketing self-defense ammo and we, you know, num- certain numbers are chosen or, or highlighted to try to make it seem more impressive than it really is performance wise. Uh, <laughs> there's been people selling magic bullets of some sort ever since the glazer safety slugs came out in the sixties. Um, and we know, you know, like for pistol ammo, a high velocity fragmenting, low penetration, uh, low mass bullet is a recipe for disaster. It's not a recipe for success. And yet every few years, somebody comes out with some variation of it is supposed to be, you know, here's our magic bullet. It's going to work more gooder. And, and, and it really doesn't. Yep. Yep. That's right. There, there, there's a reason why the tried and true is the tried and true. <laughs> you know, humans physiologically have not changed in a very long time. Uh, human factors of fighting, you know, fight or flight restru- response, adrenaline stress, things like that have not changed in a very, very long time. So anatomy hasn't changed. You know, hearts haven't moved to someplace else. Uh, physics is still physics. Uh, that has not changed in the meantime. So as much as people want all of this stuff to be somehow different, you know, the, 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 the brutal fact of life is that there's no free lunch like that. Yeah. Awesome. Yep. I agree. So if we were to kind of, well, actually before I move on, um, what is, covered when you teach a OC spray course mm-hmm. to civilians, um, you know, kind of maybe give folks a, a tease, if you will, maybe what to expect in September. What does that look like? So, for uh, well, I, I always, <laughs> I always try to put like 10 pounds of product into a five pound bag. I'm in, I'm invariably trying to, uh, you know, stomp that and make more fit into the time frame involved. So depending on the time frame I've got involved, I try to get deep into things like uh, pre-criminal assault indicators uh, and what Craig Douglas so uh, wonderfully termed managing unknown contacts. Mm-hmm. So uh, give people the recognition of what a pre-criminal assault indicator looks like, the type of body language, the language used, things like that how to avoid that uh, criminal selection process, basically fail the interview, if you will. Um, and then if it, if it's going to turn into tactics, if you have to get physical or you have to use tools, how to, how to most effectively do that. But the first thing is you have to recognize the attack for what it is in order to try and uh, circumvent it or avoid that attack altogether. Uh, we know from if we've read our Art of War, Sun Tzu tells us that the uh, best way to win a battle is to win it before it's ever fought. And then you don't actually have to fight that battle, you know, set the stage ahead of time. Uh, we know. Um, I, I remember so I'm a big history geek, military history, uh, and I remember uh, a World War II thing that feeds into exactly what we're talking about here. So one of the biggest German aces. Uh, in World War II, was fighting on the Western Front after D-Day, and then the P-51 Mustangs came into play. So, uh, you know, that that was a big game changer for the American Air Force, and because it was, you know, probably the finest prop fighter plane ever developed, and uh, the Germans were terrified of it, you know, because we had yet another advantage on them. So... Uh, one of the, this ACE had gone up and shot down several of them all in the same day. Mm. So he comes back and the other guys in the squadron are asking him, well, we've heard these things are just, you know, they're really fast. They got a lot of guns, you know, they're really dangerous. Is all of that true? And the, the fighter ACE tells him, well, I don't know because none of them saw me coming. So, you know, out there on the street, you can have your Wonder Blaster 3000 on your hip uh, and all of that. But if you don't see your fight coming, it won't matter. Um, so I cover things like situational awareness, mindset, uh, managing unknown contacts, and then how to best utilize a reasonable level of force to, to defend yourself. Um, and then quite frankly, nowadays, you know, the reasons why things like uh, 
you know, CCW safe and some of the other, uh, I don't want to call them insurances, but plans, you know, people have to try and you know, legal defense plans, things like that exist is man. If you, if you actually get into a shooting, um, now you're dealing with the legal system. Maybe you're dealing with a political DA. You know, I would hate to be in a defensive shooting in say St. Louis nowadays with some of the shenanigans going on in the DA's office there. Uh, you know, if you can avoid 50 or a hundred thousand or $500,000 worth of legal fees to uh, stay out of jail because you got into a deadly force event, if I could avoid all that with a lower level of force, uh, I'm that much better off, you know? Yeah. Yeah, of course. What, what are some of the, uh, pre-assault indicators, uh, that, you, that folks should be looking for? Um, Initially, long distance, when you have people uh, really paying attention to what you are doing or they are basically the, the, they're doing things that just don't look right. Um, say you come out of the Walmart and you look out and you got guys hanging around, you know, who, who hangs around the, uh, the uh, uh, shopping cart corral, the little, you know, shopping cart corral out in the middle of the lot. You see guys see a group of guys congregated out there, probably don't want to go that way. I might take the long way to my car. Um, see people loitering in places that don't make sense. Um, you know, they might be out there. It's like the water hole in the Serengeti. Where does the lion stake out when he's looking for a zebra to jump? You know, they don't randomly look for that. They do it in places like watering holes. Um, so you'll see people, if they look like they're surveilling and watching an area, they're probably surveilling and watching an area, you know, they're, they're shopping for victims. Uh, if you have a common thing nowadays in, in urban areas is the aggressive panhandler and the, Hey, give me a dollar is a prelude to things like a strong arm robbery, a purse snatch, that sort of thing. So when you have people trying to engage you that, that you don't know, Hey, can you help me with this? Hey, can you give me a dollar? Hey, buddy, I need to talk to you for a minute. Um, that could that could be a hook to uh, get inside of that type of distance where they can do something if they uh, decide that that's what they want to do. Um, and then there, there's a whole range of once there's an interaction going on, there's a whole range of pre-assault indicators like uh, grooming cues, uh, people who are doing a pat check on, on their you know, that, that the other person is armed and they'll often touch or pat where they, they're carrying their weapon at, uh, target glancing, things like that. It's a whole laundry list of stuff that I cover when we're covering this topic in class. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's a great kind of brief intro there uh, into a lot of that. Um, important stuff to watch for, for sure. You know, I, the story I like to share Per, you know, kind of personal experience myself, a uh, number of years ago, I had a young, young child at home that was sick and it was late one night and we ran out of the Tylenol or children's ibuprofen or whatever, you know? So, so my wife says, Hey, run down to the Walmart because at that time, 24 hour Walmart, about the only thing that was open at 1245 in the morning, you know, and I'm like, okay, not ideal, but here we go. And uh, get to the Walmart park, and I noticed a couple of guys sitting in a car the next aisle over, and they're just sitting there, you know. But as I I didn't take any note or didn't think anything of it at the time, but when I got out of my vehicle, I glanced over and saw them really like locked in on me, and I was like, hmm, that's interesting. And I just played it cool, closed the door, locked the car, walked into the entrance of the uh, Walmart. And got to the entrance and just kind of did a little U-turn and just turned around and sort of while inside the vestibule, you know, of the store, just looked out there and I saw them exit their vehicle and start, you know, checking out my vehicle. And they're looking in the windows and everything. And I was like, oh, here we go. Call the non-emergency number for the local PD and, hey, got a couple guys casing my vehicle. And fortunately, a cop right around the corner was there within like a mm -hmm. minute. 45 seconds, if that, and that was all it took for them to skedaddle and take off out of there. So, um, I mean, that wasn't like necessarily, it doesn't look like, it didn't seem like they were targeting me personally, but targeting my vehicle. And I likely would have gone into the store and come out and found, you know, a window smashed and stuff missing or the car missing. So, yeah, 
<clears throat> yeah. So just paying attention and, and uh, I mean, obviously not, it's about paying attention and being aware, but uh, especially there's, there's going to be times too. I've discovered there's been a couple other instances I've experienced, but it's more like that spidey sense, you know, that, that tingling, like something about this looks off or seems off. Mm-hmm. And in my younger years, I think I was a little more mm, stubborn to listen to that. But uh, I, I think I'm a little wiser now that, you know what, it, it's best to be overly cautious than to be underly cautious. So anyway. yeah. you can. And if, if you look at what you're doing and how you how you're doing it, um, you know, like. <laughs> One one of the jokes I talk about is I got a buddy that's a pilot, and uh, you know, at cruising altitude, he really really doesn't worry that much. He says it's uh, taking off and landing. That's what's real stressful. And I'm like, you know, we were talking about that, and he goes, "Yeah, uh, typically you have to be very very close to the ground to crash." <laughs> like, no no kidding. Uh, so you you he you identify your danger points basically. So when you're talking about the Walmart, you know, when you're driving, what's your worry? You might get into an accident, something like that. But typically that transitional space between your car and the store, then you're coming out between the store and your car. That transitional space is where this sort of stuff happens. Um, Tom Gibbons famously says that there really is no real street crime. Uh, There's parking lot crime uh, when you think about it. And, People don't typically get mugged right in the middle of the road, you know, uh, parking lots, parking garages, places like that are, are a much more high crime area. So that trend, just transitional space in between your car and the store coming back out of the store to your car, that's where you really want to, you know, get out of your head and into your environment. You know, when you're in the store, if you want to wander around and, uh, you know, in a normal like grocery store or something, and you, you're going to read your grocery list, you're looking for what you're looking for, et cetera, is what it is. And, you know, most people don't get jacked in the milk aisle. You know, I'm not saying that something like that's impossible, but if we're pl- playing our probabilities, you really want to turn your radar up and on in that transitional space. And then realizing that and having the mindset of, okay, I need to get my face out of my phone or whatever the case may be, because I have to make it from point A to point B successfully. Yep. Yeah. We're in a modern age where distractions are more prevalent than they probably ever have been, especially these modern mobile mobile devices. So we see everybody's head buried in them. Uh, I even catch myself from time to time where you just, you know, you feel that buzz or ding or whatever, that alert. You're like, oh, somebody's somebody's trying to reach me or saying something to me or whatever. And it's, uh, it can be difficult to avoid those distractions. Any recommendations or suggestions about that? You know, that's a, that's a very, that's a very, uh, personal habitual training thing. You're, you're going to have to want to make yourself mindful of that. And then, uh, practice keeping your head, basically keeping your head in the game. Um, so I'm trying to remember the trainer who came up with the, uh, the, the phrase and he started it in police work, but it applies to everywhere is basically, uh, what he calls when W I N what's important now, mm. what's really important now, let's say you are leaving the Walmart and you're carrying some grocery stuff and you have to get to your, your car. Uh, what's important right now? Is it really important that you answer the phone right now? Or is it really important that you get your groceries to your car while avoiding any problems in between here and there? That's mm-hmm. what's really important now. Uh, when you're driving, is it really important to you know update your Instagram? <laughs> or is it important not to end up in front of a cement truck while you're uh, negotiating the next intersection? Uh, so keeping, keeping it in mind when... You know, how do I win this? Uh, what's important? What's my next most important thing? Uh, I have seen a lot of people. I have friends who are dead from not keeping that concept in mind that uh, what they had their head on or their brain turned in, tuned into was not what was really important in the moment. Hmm. It's really wise advice. 
you know, I, th- I think one of the tricky things, you, I mean, even using driving as an example and kind of relating it to uh, your pilot friend talking about, you know, cruising at altitude, that's, that's easy. That's low stress. You know, that's just, mm-hmm. just cruising. Uh, it's really easy to, to get distracted by things when you're, you know, doing things like driving or everyday kind of habitual routine things because, hey, I'm just in cruise control right now. Nothing, you know, I'm just, just monitoring that I'm staying within my lane, that I'm mm-hmm. you know, not, not, not running into the other guy in front of me or whatever, but uh, it's easy to get a little comfortable with that, isn't it? It is very easy to zone out. Uh, I, I personally try to, uh, especially if I'm in, in town, if I'm doing rush hour traffic, I try to avoid having my brain not in the game. So people use the term multitasking. Uh, humans cannot multitask. We can serial task. You can hop from one, one task to the next. And typically we do that poorly or much more poorly than we think. Uh, humans, phys- they cannot, can't multitask. Uh, one of my mentors, uh, Dr. Alexis Artwall, she uh, was one of the people who did a lot of the brain research on what happens to people in deadly force events and wrote uh, a heck of a book for, that's been around a long time and newly updated with uh, Lauren Christensen called Deadly Force Encounters. Mm-hmm. And that's where the information guys like Moss Ayub or you know, some of the other pioneers in the industry have when they were talking about things like, uh, you know, psychologically what happens to you at a deadly force event, things like tunnel vision and stuff like that. Uh, Dr. Artwall is the person who developed all that information and did all that research. So I was talking to her uh, after a class one time and she talked about how if she gets into rush hour traffic, she even turns her radio off because she's seen the brain scans you know, where they have uh, all the little electrodes plugged into your head and they can read what parts of your brain are active and what, uh, what aren't mm. that, uh, and they do things like put them in a, you put you in a driving simulator and then test, how do you do other things? Like if you turn on a music or have to have a conversation or something like that, uh, the party, let's say you're driving and a hundred percent of your brain is driving the car. Now you're listening to music. You just, you know, they say 5% of your brain is listening to music. Now you're talking on the phone with somebody else. There goes another 10% of your brain. Pretty soon, you know, you got like 50 or 40% of your brain actually driving the car. And, you know, frankly, the, the last time I looked at the stats, average in the United States, there was something like 10,000 murders a year. Uh, whereas typically there were something over historically something well over 60,000 uh, fatality car accidents every year, you know? So your odds of getting whacked in a car in an accident are, are vastly greater than being, uh, you know, killed in a violent encounter. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's right. What's important now, uh, tactical advantage here on YouTube is saying he thinks that quote came from Lou Holtz, a famous football coach. But uh, I, I think, and I would have to, uh, I would have to, I would have to do a little bit of searching on that one. But um, I'm having some brain flatulence right now on exactly who my buddy uh, was. I, I've actually met the guy and did a little bit of work with him in training. Mm. Um, well, it sounds like there may be. Uh, a couple folks out there that have used that or adapted that or, you know, applied it uh, to, uh, to their own, you know, sphere of, uh, of uh, expertise. Uh, I like that though. And I, I've, I've heard that somewhere as well. And I, I, I seem to recall hearing that somewhere in the firearms training community as well, uh, Chuck. And, and uh, it's good to kind of remember like what is truly important in the moment. Um, you know me, I, I, in the last couple of years, I've been, working very hard on competing at a high level, uh, you know, shooting. And, uh, that's a, even an important thing in a competition, you know, on a stage that you're shooting is not letting the mind wander and worry about things that aren't important in the present. So just staying focused on what's my, what's my task at hand in this moment right now, uh, that keeps me on the path to success. Um, cool. Well, Chuck, as we kind of start wrapping it up here, it's been about an hour. 
Um, again, we're going to be seeing you in person in September. Uh, that was the, I think it's the 17th, 19th, 18th and 19th mm-hmm. in September of this year, the guardian conference. Um, folks will have the opportunity to come and take some training from you directly. Uh, things like less lethal OC spray, managing unknown contacts, maybe even a few things as well, uh, mm-hmm. that are in your, your wheelhouse. Um, anything else you kind of want to throw out there as a, as a tease or that you want to mention as we start kind of closing thing, this up, uh, this, this episode. <clears throat> look, I'm really looking forward to the conference. Uh, there's a, a number of incredibly talented trainers that are involved in that. Um, I'm kind of honored and privileged to have been asked to participate. Uh, my next, the thing that I'm doing the, uh, end of, uh, towards the end of a uh, March range master tactical conference, uh, down in Dallas. I'm glad that last year, for the first time ever, it got shut down because of COVID restrictions. So we're doing we're doing that in Dallas again this year. Unfortunately, if somebody wants to go, it's already been sold out, and the, the waiting list is yeah. extensive. Uh, but it, look, if that's something you're interested in, it will be going on again in, in 2022. Uh, yep. So I'm involved in that. I'm going to be involved in the primary and secondary conference in Utah again. Looking forward to that one. I have my calendar on my site that if somebody has an interest in some of my training, some of the, the specialty stuff that I do, uh, everybody does some version of a, a combative pistol course or, you know, fundamentals, a pistol course. I have one that ex- is expressly uh, geared towards uh, what I call close quarter handgun. Uh, I have a small pistols course that integrates uh, tactics with uh, very small pistols or snub nose revolvers that has been a very popular class because there's a difference in the techniques and in in the how you handle like reloads malfunctions uh, things like that the actual handling characteristics of some of these small guns versus the uh uh the full-size guns uh i have my oc spray i do impact weapons uh, I do an OC spray instructor course. I've got a couple of those coming up this year. Um, but yeah, it's actually my, my calendar is getting pretty full this year with, you know, last year, a lot of so many things got shut down. And now I think there, there's a resurgence of people want to get out. They want to do stuff. Uh, they want to get to some of this stuff that they missed last year. So it's kind of, it's kind of nice to see. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Uh, uh, 2021, hopefully will be a better year. Uh, training wise, as far as the opportunities, uh, it seems like at least here in Colorado, they are continually downgrading and loosening the restrictions on the COVID front here. So we hope to see that trend continue and get this, get this crap behind us. Um, you know, one of the reasons we, uh, were really interested in having you present at our own conference, uh, was because a well-rounded self-defense minded individual isn't just about the shooting. It's the whole package. And, uh, you know, looking, I mean, the thing is we know a lot, everybody wants to come to a training event and they want to shoot. They want to put lead down range. Mm-hmm. So there's going to be a demand for that. And we're, we definitely are pretty heavy on the shooting classes, but, uh, we knew we had to have somebody like you be a part of it, an expert in the field and, and showing, um, you know, the folks, the attendees of, the, of this conference to look at these other factors. And, you know, with ammo being the way it is, it's great to have other training options that aren't ammo dependent. So a sure. uh, really important part. And I, I sincerely hope that everyone will take advantage of the opportunities to to get with you and take your blocks of training uh, so they can be a little bit, a little bit better prepared, a little bit better trained and, and more well-rounded for, uh, in the event that they need to defend themselves. Well, and I, you know, what we talked before with the legal difficulties and some of the, the, you know, the, what's going on in our, in our country, unfortunately. Uh, but just from a legal, moral, ethical standpoint, uh, one of the things I point out to people is if I can avoid being in a shooting, I'm going to avoid being in a shooting. We, if you have the mindset, you're going to do what you have to do to prevail in those circumstances. But if I have a choice between getting into a shooting or realistically not getting into a shooting, I think that's probably the A answer nowadays. You know, it's, it's much less complex. Uh, it's easier to defend. It's certainly far less expensive. Um, 
you know, I've been a gun guy for much longer than I've been, you know, into all this other stuff. And, uh, um, yeah, uh, you know, I think that's a mindset thing. I, it grieves me somewhat that there's the idea that, oh, I don't need pepper spray. I got a gun or I don't need this. I've got a gun. Well, yeah, that, that is, that is not the tool that solves all problems. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Well, awesome. Uh, it's been a pleasure having you on this evening and, uh, you know, maybe down the road we'll, we'll do it again. Although I do need to let folks know before they go that for those of you that are Guardian Nation members, which many of you Guardian Nation members are attending the Guardian Conference, um, Chuck is going to be on our monthly Guardian Nation live broadcast uh, next week, actually, uh, Thursday. I think it's March 4th, and that is 7 p.m. Mountain Time, 8 p.m. Central Time for Chuck. 9 p.m. on the uh, East Coast there uh, for folks, in case you're wondering. So we'll have them back, and we'll we'll dive a little bit deeper on some of these subjects uh, for our members. And folks, if uh, you care to, go to GuardianNation.com to learn more and uh, about joining Guardian Nation. And, of course, members get a substantial discount off of the Guardian Conference. So kind of a no-brainer there. You may want to look into it if you're already planning on or are are getting ready to sign up for the conference, uh, give it a look. So guys, we're going to let you go again. One last uh, shout out to Chuck and his company, agiletactical.com. He mentioned his calendar. You can go there, see the different training courses he offers, uh, see his calendar. And if you can't make one of the events that he mentioned, um, you see his other options he has coming up and get out there and get trained. So again, thank you, Chuck. Appreciate your time this evening. My pleasure. I'm uh, honored to have been asked to come on the show. All right. Well, folks, with that, a reminder to train right, train often, and train safe so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care. <laughs>